week three of our Crossroads series, Making Choices God's Way. And I want to begin with this question. How do I know that I have found God's will for my life? Any serious follower of Jesus Christ has asked that question more than one time in their life. Of course, when we ask that question, what we really mean by it is, what does God want me to do in this specific circumstance or with this particular dilemma or choice? To know God's will for us often translates in knowing the future. But is that what the Bible means when it refers to the will of God? The answer is yes and no. In fact, mostly no. Today, we're going to spend a very brief time looking at a pretty complex but wonderful subject. And if we don't get through it all this week, we'll pick it up next week and then round off our series by bringing all that we've learned over these three weeks into how do I really go about making those hard life decisions? And we'll wrap that up next week. But I think it's really important for us to understand exactly what this thing called the will of God is because there's a great mythology that is built up. I hope we can shatter some of that today also. Paul Joyle one of our life group leaders, an avid Red Sox fan, sent me an email with a quote by Adrian Gonzalez. He said, try to work this into your sermon this week. Ha ha. Here I am. What's it worth, Paul? I thought it was a great little quote for us to discuss. He's talking about the fact that they went down in flames at the end of the season. So he says this, I'm a firm believer that God has a plan, and it wasn't in his plan for us to move forward. God didn't have it in the cards for us. For me, I'm a firm believer in God, and God has a plan, and it wasn't in God's plan for us to be in the playoffs, Adrian Gonzalez. Now, first of all, I admire Adrian as a, as a believer. With all due respect to him and to others who think about God's will on the level of micromanagement of our lives, I think that there is a mistake of confusing God's will with another ancient philosophical principle. And it's found in this phrase, it wasn't in the cards for us. Ergo, it was not God's plan. Can you think of an ancient idea that God's will has been equated with that is expressed in that idea of being in the cards? Fate, exactly. See, when we think of God's will, we think of fate as though somehow our whole life is mapped out for us. And I would dare say that many of us, even in this room, have that type of notion someplace in our head that when I'm talking about God's will, he's got a map. And the map is pretty specific because we also tend to assume that what's important to me must be important to God. Therefore, God must have an opinion about how this should go. Well, without addressing that specifically at the beginning and telling you what I really think about that, although it might be obvious already, I want to step back and look at what the Bible actually says about God's will. Now, obviously, we can't do that in the few minutes we have today in its entirety. And we certainly can't get into the ancient debate between sovereignty of God and man's choice in relation to salvation, which is the classic Calvinistic Arminian debate. 
I want to talk about God's will in terms of our life, our choices. And so I've chosen three aspects to talk about, and then we'll wrap up talking about how our will fits into those things. The first, and it's the big one, it's, it's the one with the big words and the big ideas and the, the imposing authority, and that is what we call God's sovereign will. I want you to say this verse with me from Psalm 103. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. It isn't hard for me to find verses that speak about this sovereignty of God and his will over all of creation, because frankly, the Bible is saturated with that principle. But the passage I want to take you to, and I encourage you to take out your notes so you can fill in as we go, is Isaiah chapter 46. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 5. In this particular passage, Isaiah is speaking to Babylon. God has used Babylon as his instrument to judge Israel. But now, in turn, God is going to turn on Babylon, and he's speaking to them about their issues. And in this case, the sovereignty and power of God is contrasted with the impotence of idols, other gods who are really no gods. I'm going to pick up as we begin reading at verse 5. To whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver in the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and then they bow and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place. There it stands. From the spot, it cannot even move. Though one cries out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save him from his troubles. That's what he's saying is the deadness of man-made idols. They are, they are no God at all, lifeless. Now he compares himself. Remember this. Fix it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. This is God speaking of the sovereignty that he exercises over all of creation and all of history. So when we speak about the sovereign will of God, we're speaking about that aspect of God's will that you and I can never touch and is not impacted in any way by the choices we make, either our rebellion against it or our cooperation with it. So when we talk about this piece, I want you to just think of four quick things about God's sovereignty. First of all, God is sovereign, and that means he rules over all things. And remember, time itself is part of God's creation. There was no time before God said, let there be. So even time itself is a part of God's creation. He's Lord over that as well. He's not bound by it. To be eternal is to be apart from even time. So when God looks at creation, he just doesn't look at it like you and I do in the moment, but with a broader view of the whole expanse of the universe, he looks at it from beginning to end. That's what it means to be eternal. He's apart from time. He reigns over the whole. See? 
That means that his sovereign will in relation to that is his plans and purposes for his creation. Believe it or not, even though Scripture is the story of God's love affair and purpose with the human race and his intent to have a people for himself, it is not our story ultimately. It is God's story, just like it's God's creation. He has a purpose for it, and nothing thwarts those purposes, he says. What I plan to do, I'm going to do. And the Bible as a story shows us that over and over and over again. So when we think about God's sovereign will, that part that he has destined to occur, and it will happen because his word has declared it, we're a part of that story, but it's not dependent on us. Okay? Third area about that. We only know a small portion of that plan. God has only made known a small portion of it to us. For us, it's a great deal of information that we can spend a lifetime processing, but it is only a piece. It begins to just scratch the surface. As Paul writes, that we look through a glass dimly. There are things about God's sovereign plan that he hasn't even bothered to tell us. And the thing that we're reminded of in Scripture is that ultimately, everything that God does is not only from him, And not only through him, which means he sustains it. He's the source of it. It's from him. It's through him. He sustains it. It's to him. In the end, everything God does is for his glory. Does God work for our good? Praise God he does. Why? For his glory. Does God love us? Absolutely. But for his glory. You see, God sits at the center of his universe, and everything that he does is meant to emanate from him, be sustained by him, and return to him so that he alone receives the glory. You know, if we were to take that mentality and put it down into everyday life so that we described a human being like that, everything that person does comes from him. He thinks he's that big of a deal. He can't let anything happen without him. And then when it's all said and done, he sits back and wants the credit. What do we say about that person? Narcissistic, self-centered, it's a good word. I like that one, God complex. Why is self-centeredness wrong for the human being? And it seems to be exactly what God is. Because God is the center. And you and I aren't. When we act in a way that puts us at the center of everything, including our relationship with God, what we are doing is putting ourselves in the role that God alone is to hold. And just as being self-centered is, for us, unrighteous, the only truly righteous place for God to be is exactly at the center of everything he does. Anything else for God would be a compromise for his nature. See, we want it so much to be about us. We want God to so wrap himself around us that we think we can determine it all. The first thing you want to do if you want life as God planned it is just to give up on that. Just to give up on it. Jesus put it this way. Take up your cross. Follow me. But what does he hold up as the carrot in front of us for that? If you want to find life. God is God and I'm not. Somebody last week talked about a bumper sticker that they saw when they said, there's only one God, stop applying for the job. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's what it means to understand God's sovereignty. There's things that only God knows, and God has a plan for all of things, but it's his plan, and frankly, we can't get in the way of it. That's what God's sovereignty means. How much does that work in our individual lives? Stay with me, <laughs> and we'll move on. But what ought our response to be? And that's found in James chapter 4. In the book of James, he's dealing with um, secular-mindedness. So this really isn't a passage about God's will, but God's will is referred to in the context of a proper attitude towards the decisions we make. And I'm just going to begin reading at verse 13 of James 4. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go in to this uh, city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. What's he describing? Somebody that's making choices, planning for the future around their life. Is that a normal part of life? Sure it is. What is the problem here? He goes on and he says, um, he says, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What's the, the problem with this focus? The problem with the focus of this particular business class is that everything they're about is for this life and its prosperity. They're at the center of the plans. And the problem is their focus is very short because it's only looking at this life. And in context with our existence, which is eternal, it, it, that amounts to a vapor. That's what James is saying. So what's the alternative? The alternative is instead, verse 15, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Just real quickly, without digging this piece apart too much, that last piece gives us a glimpse at James' understanding about what it means to live in the real will of God. Some of that plan impacts what God does in my life, and so I need to be sensitive to that, have an eternal focus in what I do, submit all my plans to God's greater purposes and His sovereignty, but also to understand God's will is to understand that He's already revealed a big portion of His will to us, that it isn't a mystery. And the sin is in not doing what God has already told us to do. So this brings up a huge issue for most of us, because most of us get serious about finding God's will when it serves us, when I've got a decision I need to make, when, when I, I need to decide about a career or a mate or a move. Suddenly we're serious about the will of God. But the vast majority of God's will, He's already told you. And it's in disregarding what God has already said to us that we've already abandoned the will of God. We've already chosen not to submit to the sovereignty of God. Why bother asking God for advice on what he hasn't revealed when you're ignoring what he's already revealed? Does that hurt too much? Deal with it. Okay. <laughs> There's a second aspect of God's will that we're going to talk about, and that's God's moral will. Now, this is exactly what I was just referring to. This is the huge piece of God's will that he's clearly revealed to us. It's about what God wants us first to believe. What does Scripture teach us? Peter, God's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It is God's will 
that humanity turn to him by faith, come to faith in him, and find life. It's about what we believe, and it's also, God's moral will is also about how we behave. Now, you remember two weeks ago when we talked about classes of decisions, as we talked about how complex life is. Talked about choices that have eternal consequence, which is really very much about our beliefs. We talked about choices that have lifelong consequences, the big choices, career, marriage, family, location, all those different things. And then we talked about all those decisions that we make that we hardly even think about. What clothes am I going to wear today? What am I grabbing on my way to eat for breakfast? Will it be a bagel? Will it be this or that? What do I watch tonight on television? What do I do with my free time? Do even those decisions fit into God's moral will? I think they do. No, there's not a right or wrong in a lot of these decisions, which we'll talk about later. But it's more about how we go about making them. Because all those little decisions that you make almost thoughtlessly are coming from something in you. I like to call it our choice reflex. Everything that's happening in you spiritually, your life's experience, what's motivating you, your needs, your wants, your hurts, all those things shape your character, and out of that character, you make those everyday decisions. And every once in a while, if you just step back and look at them, you can see certain patterns emerge. I found this European advertisement, so you need to watch it and pay close attention to the subtitles. I think it's cute, but I think it'll make a, a point, too. It's going to be real quick. Watch it. <laughs> Get the idea? Even the everyday patterns say something, especially to the most important people in our life. So I want to argue that God's moral will, how he's taught us to shape our lives, works its way into even those choices that we make that are just by choice reflex. There's something about transforming us that even those decisions matter. So in one sense, every decision is not right or wrong, evil or good, but even those decisions that apparently don't matter do come from some place that God wants to shape. That's his moral will. Let me give you just a couple other points about this. God has already made known to us abundantly this piece of God's will. I'm just going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You can write it down for sake of time. Listen to this list, God's moral will for our life through the Apostle Paul. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. We urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else, be joyful always, be continual, uh, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, do these things, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, let me just tell you, for the great majority of God's will. We don't need to say, God, show me your will. We need to read it and begin applying it. And if we're not doing that, then we're wasting our time trying to get God to give us guidance on the big issues because it's his word, it's his moral will that shapes us so that our choice reflex even is conformed to him and his purpose and plans for our life. 
God's moral will should impact forth our motives, goals, and the way we reach them. So in other words, one of the ways you can be confident that the choices you're making that are the bigger ones for your life as you see them, you can be confident about those is to answer this question. Are you living in obedience to God's moral will? Are you lining your life up in such a way that what God has taught us in Scripture, how we're to live, how we're to use our resources, how we're to use our time, what we're to believe who we're to associate with, are you lining yourself up in such a way that that is your life? Because that is the path that's going to lead to choosing life, Deuteronomy 30, which is our theme passage. God's moral will, right? And that's Scripture. Just a reminder, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Let's say it together. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What's that last phase? Thoroughly equipped for every good work. What's that about? That's about every choice I make in life. Where does it come from? God's Word is the map. There is no other map. There's no secret map that God's got up there with your name on it in some filing cabinet that if you ask him for prayer, he goes, well, let's go see what it says. Oh, yeah, Tuesday of next week, you need to be there. We'll talk about that aspect of God's sovereignty next week. But primarily, you got the map. You got the map. This is the way. Walk in it, and you'll make good choices. All right, that's God's moral will. Now we're going to talk quickly about God's personal will. And this is God's will for you, his attention and affection and thoughts related to you and me. Remember this passage from Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah is being called by God, and God says this to him personally. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. We looked at this passage and we looked at our self-image series that we did, uh, I think, last spring before we got into 1 Peter. God said to Jeremiah, I had you in mind before you were even formed in the womb. Uh, God's eternal relationship that he has with us in his sovereignty. Now, what it speaks of is, and I want to be very clear about this, this is spoken to Jeremiah. I cannot stand up here and therefore say that God would say this to each of us. And sometimes we make that mistake. We take a passage of Scripture because God said something to one person or God gifted them with a certain ability to do miracles or ability to see the future, that that ought to be the norm. When in fact, in Scripture, it's the great exception. While Jeremiah was receiving divine revelation from God, Millions of God's children were going through their life, following the law, making everyday decisions, struggling to, I hear the echo of the words of Moses, I set before you blessing, cursing, life and death, choose life, going through their life every day by faith, trying to choose life, going to the temple, offering their sacrifices for forgiveness of sin, and never once hearing the verbal voice of God, never once. So we have to be careful when we come to passages where we see a particular person that God is engaged with in a certain way and suggest that that is true for all believers. That, frankly, is abuse of Scripture. And we have been called to honor Scripture, to rightly divide it, 
I would be lying to you if I said that this somehow says that God would say that to you personally, each of you, if given the opportunity. But I do believe, that being said, that this is a picture of what Scripture teaches broadly about God's affection, His awareness of you and I as people, and that He does have distinct desires and purposes for us. Jesus even spoke about that. At least Jesus spoke about God's intimate knowledge of you and I, even down to the very hairs of our head that there is a purpose that God has for each of us. In the New Testament, we see the dwelling of the Holy Spirit and the gifting of every believer for ministry as God has uniquely gifted him. That's personal attention. See, there is a personal will of God for all of our lives. Let's describe this to you. First of all, um, this is God's thoughts and purposes about you personally. Secondly, it's more about relationship than accomplishment. And third is similar. It's more about being than doing. Very often when we think about God's plan, we think about that map idea, very specific decisions. But to what degree does God micromanage our lives? That's the question. When you look at Scripture and you understand what the Bible teaches about God's personal will for you, it's far more about your relationship with Him than those choices. It's far more about the kind of person you're becoming than your actions. And if you start reading God's Word from that lens, you will see much of God's personal will for you very clear. Because the way God prepares you to make those life-altering decisions is by His relationship with you and by the conforming of you into his image. More about making godly decisions than specific choices. Let me just quickly suggest one thought for you to think about. We'll come back to this next week. How far down does God micromanage? In God's personal will for you, what specific decisions matter to him? I'm going to give you one that may make me appear to be a meanie person who is not very romantic. Thank you, Vit. Let me say, I am so glad I married my wife. So glad. But here's my question. Where in the Bible does it teach you that God has a specific person in mind for you to marry? Anybody ever read that in the Bible? Uh, it's not there. Where did that idea come from? Okay, so God did make Eve for Adam, but remember at the time, there was nobody else. When we have this idea that God made you for me, that's taking the ideas of romanticism, which is man-made, and replacing that for agape, God's love. God didn't make your mate for you. He made your mate for himself, just like he made you for himself. So, let's think about this. If the notion is true that God has just one person in mind for you down here, and maybe they're sitting in the row with you. Who knows? If, if that's true, what happens if you get it wrong? If instead of marrying Bob, Sue marries Bill, because she's just not paying attention to God's choice for her in that day. So what that means is that not only has Sue married the wrong person, but so has Bill, and probably Bob will too. So Bob's going to go off, and because God made Bob for Sue, Bob's going to marry Elaine, which means now Elaine's out of God's will, and 
whoever Elaine was supposed to marry. So you can see, you made the wrong choice, you screwed it up for everybody. You see what we turn this into? That's why I can't stress this enough. God's will is far more about how you make life's choices than the exact choices themselves. And some of us just can't get around to picking somebody to marry because we're so nervous that we'll pick the wrong person. Let me tell you something. You're going to pick a person that's broken and messed up just like you. (laughs) You will never find the perfect partner. What you have is a perfect God and a perfect grace and the ability to live in a covenantal relationship that is filled with love and, yes, romance. You see, it's about choosing well and living godly even in our marriage choices. See? You think that's possible about jobs too? Yeah, I do too. You see what I'm saying? I want to free us from this thought that it's about if I'm going to miss God's will for my life, if I marry the wrong person, if I pick the wrong job this year, if I move to the wrong city, that that's what God's concerned about. He's not. Here's what God promises. He promises whatever you choose and what other people do to you, he's going to be in all of it for the good. So that gives us confidence as we go about making our choices. Now, I'm going to end here today, and I hope I've got you excited enough to hear the end of this, that you'll come back next week when we do finally get to our free will and how that plays into God's sovereign will, his moral will, and his personal will for you and me. And how we do go about making those life-shaping decisions. So my goal today has been both to break some of your assumptions, shatter some of the myths, which ought to be, if you think about it, liberating. Now, it may change up your life story. You may have to stop saying some of the things you said about how clearly God did this or did that, which really, the only reason you say that is because you decided that was true. And be a little more humble about those decisions, but also recognize that there's a lot of freedom within those decisions. And then we'll talk about how to go about being confident in those choices. So we'll wrap all that up next week. The big thing for me to talk to you about this week is that God is sovereign over it all. God does sit at the center of life. He has revealed so much of his desires for us. And if you want to be a person that can make the toughest decisions in life, you want to know God's will about them? Be a person living in God's revealed will. Let him shape you, conform you into his image. You will make godly choices. It's not really that hard. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of your word. (laughs) This has been one of those Sundays where it's a bit like sitting under Niagara Falls drinking with a straw. There's so much here to think about, but yet at the same time, it does simplify itself a bit if we look at it. You are sovereign over creation. Your plans and purposes you will fulfill for your glory. In many ways, those plans and purposes work into our lives, but in so many ways, we don't impact those things. There is your moral will. Forgive us, Father, for treating that as an optional thing, that somehow we can put that aside and then come to you and say, what else do you have for us? Help us to understand that you want to conform us into your image so that we make godly, good, life-giving choices. And praise God that you do have a personal will for us. You know our name. You know the numbers of hair on our head. You care for us. 
as our shepherd. You call us by name, and we know your voice. Thank you that in all of your greatness, you do personally engage in our lives. Father, help us to trust that, to be more understanding of what that purpose means, to submit to it, and to know that the key in that, what you want above all things, is to be in a loving relationship with us and to be changing who we are. And that's what impacts what we do and what we choose. In Jesus' name, amen.